Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hey, Trojan fans, welcome to a very special edition of the Peristyle Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Abraham, publisher of USCFootball.com, and we have a national recruiting analyst for Scout.com, Brandon Huffman, one of the big reasons we actually came over, USCFootball.com, came over to the Scout Network. Guys like Brandon really locking it down on the West Coast. Really appreciate you coming on the show, Brandon. How you doing? Doing good, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Not a problem, not a problem, man. Uh, Brandon, if you guys don't know, he definitely uh, knows everything that's going on here on the West Coast. Uh, as far as recruiting goes, if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's a great follow, at Brandon Huffman. At Brandon Huffman, you can follow him there. And uh, anything else you want to promote, Brandon, before we get out there and start talking about this stuff? Hey, keep your uh, your eyes tuned in to Scout over the next couple weeks because camp season is heavily hitting. So, SU uh, fans, you'll be seeing a lot of coverage of the Vegas 7-on-7 this weekend, the Nike camp. So, yeah, just keep tuning in to um, or keep checking out Scott.com and USCfootball.com, and you will be getting all kinds of recruiting information these next couple weeks and months and beyond. Yeah, that's great. We, we love having uh, Brandon and Greg Biggins stopping by the Peristyle and, and posting uh, you know nuggets of recruiting information there. And um, we actually – the whole reason we're doing this podcast with Brandon today, a little special edition, is we got a question um, from Matt – he wrote in, and I thought, you know, this would be a really interesting thing to talk to Brandon Huffman about. I sent it to Brandon, and he thought it would be a good idea. So I think we'll start with that, Brandon, and then we wanted to just – we'll do a kind of quick review of, of how USC finished up in recruiting and kind of get your thoughts on it from a, a national perspective. But um, here's Matt's uh, – I'll, I'll read you what he wrote. He said, I saw your post today – so this was uh, about a week or so ago – uh, on the scout rankings, but my question thought is that all of the ranking services rank Southern players much more frequently than Western players. Uh, it's pretty subjective at some point. How do you compare the 60th rated player from Florida or Georgia versus one from California? Yes, I do think that in the South they have a higher percentage of football players than we do in California. Our population is very diverse, but I've also seen Georgia with the similar amount of rated players versus California. And that cannot be correct in reality. And he, he gives a link to a map that shows NFL players and active in what state they're from. Um, and just to give you, you can't see the map, obviously, on this podcast. But he says, from the chart, California has the most NFL players active. Why shouldn't the rating services rate more California players? Because this really is the reality. More players from California are in the NFL. So this is a big reason why SEC, quote, unquote, wins recruiting every, every year. And he puts in parentheses, ESPN ratings are, are the most biased. Just my two cents. In reality, it doesn't matter, but it's just part of the SEC spin machine. Thanks from Matt. I think there's two ways to look at that. I mean, on one hand, I don't think they, with the NFL players, because case in point, when we're doing the rankings, yes, there's a lot of thought towards the NFL given to it, but I also think in the case of, let's say, a guy like Kyler Murray. I mean, Kyler Murray was the national player of the year. He's from Texas, so he's kind of irrelevant to this particular conversation. But Kyler Murray is rated high because he's a phenomenal high school football player, and he's going to probably be a phenomenal college player. 
but you don't necessarily think he's going to become an elite NFL player just because of the size that he's got, and there's still a hesitancy from NFL GMs, Russell Wilson notwithstanding. You're going to see more cases like Johnny Manziel than a Russell Wilson and Drew B. So there's not going to be as many NFL teams going after him. So we have to try to keep in mind that we're ranking them based on where we think they're going to do and, and what they're going to do in college. On the other hand, I absolutely think that there is validity to their, the ranking. I don't think it's valid in the point that I think it's a good model, but I think that there is a lot of validity that there is a much higher percentage that are players in the South rated because there is, I think, a bigger – obviously in the Southeast you have the SEC, you have the ACC – you also have Conference USA, you have the American Athletic Conference, you have more football and more schools to choose from in the South. And you also have the really big offer-breeding offer mentality. On the West Coast, you really just have the Pac-12 and the Mountain West to, to an extent. But when it gets down to the Pac-12, you don't really see the offer-breeding offer mentality happening in the Pac-12. What happens is, I think in the Southeast, you get schools that one big school offers, and then everybody starts to offer without even evaluating. And then the natural assumption is, well, he's got 15 offers, 10 of them are from the SEC, 5 are from the ACC. This kid should be rated higher than the kid on the West Coast who may only have 7 or 8 Pac-12 offers because the 15 SEC and ACC offers are greater than the 8 Pac-12 offers when the reality is, the eight Pac-12 schools that have offered are the big dogs, the USC's, the Stanford's, the UCLA's, the Oregon's, and the SEC schools that have offered usually tap, top out at a school like Texas A&M. But because there's more offers being thrown out from that region, I think players tend to get rated higher from that region because it looks like they have a sexist, sexier offer sheet. And I think that there are some networks that so much of what their ratings are based on is who have offered, even though we know now in 2015, offers don't mean what they used to do. So I think if you look at it from an NFL standpoint, the fact that California has more than anybody in the NFL, while it's good and all, I don't necessarily think that should be the determining factor just because we're breaking them and basing them on what we think they're going to do in college. And there's going to be more college players from the Southeast and playing in the Southeast because there's just more schools down there playing football. But I also think at the same time, because of this mentality that offers are what should be the true indicator of a ranking, that's why you're seeing Southern players being rated higher because you don't just have Florida, but you also have Georgia, you have Louisiana, you have Mississippi out West. And it's not just California, it's really the whole West region. If you take California, you uh, take California out of the equation, there's just not a lot of good football talent being produced out West in terms of just the gross numbers that there are in the region. So I think that that skews it a bit, but I think if you based it on the fact that California has more active NFL players than anybody, have more players drafted last year than any state, then the numbers and the statistics are really skewing towards the South based primarily on the large amount of offers that are going out down there. What, uh, thanks, Brandon, for that. What, what other aspect? Um, the, in California, there are a lot of uh, junior college programs, and some of those NFL players you know, end up coming up through those rankings there. Does that... You know, there's, there's, I think there's more junior colleges, you know, in California than anywhere else. Um, does that have any kind of uh, impact on the rankings at all? Well, I think it does in terms of just the numbers. But again, they're going to base it on where do they play their high school football. Even if their JUCO football was played in California, you know, you really only have California, Texas, Mississippi, and Kansas as the big school or the big states that have junior college football. I think there's a couple other up in the Northeast that have junior college football. But really, California is pushing out a ton of those guys 
but a lot of those guys are being placed at junior colleges in California from SEC schools, from ACC schools, guys that are from the South that needed to get out of the South or they got they went out to California because there was more opportunity because there was more JUCOs than there were at, say, a Butler Community College or at a uh, another JUCO in Texas or, you know, Pearl River in Mississippi. But, again, when these numbers are based, it goes back to where they are in high school, which I think even, you know, bolds that fact even more because even if you look at some of the JUCO players that are getting drafted, very few of those guys are from California. When it comes down to where these guys go to high school and then go straight to Division One school, I think that even skews the number more towards California. You get a lot of kids from the Southeast that get offers, but there's no chance that they're going to qualify. So they do go the JUCO route, and the high school gets the credit, for, and the state gets the credit where they played high school ball. But I think California is doing a better job of any state of sending guys from the high schools to, straight to Division One schools and then to the NFL. And I think that this you know, kind of inflates the numbers a little bit more because the JUCO rankings help out a lot of those southern states. The, uh, what about the style of play, too? Because there, the SEC does get a lot of like quarterbacks. If you're looking for pocket-passing quarterbacks, there's more of them, it seems like, in California where maybe there aren't as many uh, you know, dual-threat kind of athletic quarterbacks that have great college careers but maybe don't make it all the way to the NFL. So they wouldn't kind of show up in these numbers that you were talking you know that, that that he was referring to about you know nfl players they end up being they could be really good college players but they just don't end up on nfl rosters when they're done with college right and i think if you you know you, you look at where a lot of these nfl teams are, are drafting guys i mean they're still going with a lot of the programs that are running pro style offenses and more pro style type of defenses i think there's a nice balance nowadays with defenses in the NFL running the 3-4 and running the 4-3. But I think when it comes to offenses, you're still seeing a large amount of, of pro-style offenses. And I think up until just, you know, really in the last four or five years, the Pac-12 had been the one conference that really seemed to be consistently across the board, at least or at least at the top, having more pro-style offenses. I think even the offenses that are considered more spread in the Pac-12, there's still a lot of pro-style-based principles in there. And because of that and because of the, you know, the amount of coaches in the Pac-12 that have either been NFL head coaches or been NFL assistant coaches but or spent time in the pro ranks, they brought kind of that pro mentality down to college. And I think because of that, that's drawing a lot of talented players to the Pac-12 schools, whether they're from California or whether they're from outside the region. A guy like Andrew Luck leaves Texas to go to Stanford to play for Jim Harbaugh. You, you see a lot of those guys coming to Pac-12 schools because they know that the preparation that they're getting in college is going to help that translate to the next level. But the reality is the, the primary backbone of the Pac-12 schools are West Coast kids. And so I think because the Pac-12 has done such a good job of preparing players for the NFL – you're seeing a lot of the West Coast kids, for the most part, staying on the West Coast because they know that those offenses and those defenses are going to really kind of fast-track them and get them ready for the next level. And I think that's where you're seeing this number of California players really stand out because so many of those guys are going to colleges out West where there is good pro-style type of coaching going on. And that's why I think you're seeing guys that – are going to maybe southern schools. Maybe they're going to Midwest schools that they're more niche offenses that don't necessarily translate to the NFL. They're tapering out once they get finished with their college career. Uh, one last point on this topic I wanted to get your thoughts on. I get, like, the big three, California, Texas, and Florida. If you want to jump who's the best. I mean, you see the kind of high school football that's played in Texas where they have 60,000-seat stadiums. It's absolutely crazy. Friday Night Lights is 
insane down there. Florida, you know, just athletes all over the place. You know, and, and you know, California just so broad. Like so many guys that play college football. They're, you know, obviously it's a very diverse state, but there's so much. The population's so high. Southern California, Northern California, tons of guys, tons of athletes. You get tons of players. What I don't quite get is the when you, you put Georgia in the mix, and and where I was previously associated with the uh, the other network associated with. I mean, they would invite like t- guys from the top hundred and have as many players from Georgia as they would at California. And that I just never got. If you look at this chart, I mean, there's 268 players from California in the NFL, 113 from Georgia. So more than double uh, that. So, But the ratios for high school would be almost the same. And it seems like a pretty big gap to make up. But I don't know if there was just some kind of agenda or what was going on there. But it seemed like, Brandon, a real push for, oh, Georgia's just like Florida or Texas or California. I just never got that. Yeah, and, and I, I don't get it, and I don't think it's a reality. I think it's a manufactured fiction that's being done to kind of try to, you know, make Atlanta the, the hub of, you know, it, it's no coincidence. Where is the SEC championship game? In Atlanta. Atlanta's kind of the heart and soul, the capital, if you will, of the South. So when you try to make Atlanta, you know, in Georgia, one of the big three outside of the South, nobody thinks that. I think, I think people – outside of the South, South still consider Ohio and Pennsylvania to be kind of that fourth state after the big three. I also think that, you know, with Georgia, you do have some good top-end talent in Georgia, but you don't have anywhere near the depth like you have it in California. You don't have anywhere near the depth that you do in Florida or in Texas, but it's almost as if, you know, the, the media, the mainstream media is trying to make Georgia a theme when, yes, it's producing a lot of good talent. But, I mean, if you want to go down to the south and talk about which state per capita is doing the best and putting out talent, Louisiana would be there before Georgia. I mean, Georgia's a big state with a lot of people there, thanks largely to Atlanta. But Louisiana is actually doing a better job of putting out players per capita than Georgia is. And so I, I'm like you. I'm fascinated by the fact that uh, the four-letter network, <laughs> that's prominent on our television has, has had as many Georgia players as California players, if not more, the last four or five years because that's that's fiction. And if that was the case, Georgia, which does a very good job of keeping its best players in state, you would think Georgia would be better than they are because who are they sharing the talent with? Georgia Tech? Not really because Georgia Tech has to recruit differently. It would be like what Stanford's had to do in California. California produces great talent, and so USC is getting first dibs. UCLA and Cal are getting kind of that next set, and Stanford's having to recruit nationally because they have to recruit differently. So if Georgia's getting all that uber-elite talent, and we all know that, you know, I feel that Mark Rick's one of the best coaches in college football, maybe not one of the uber-elite, but he's a top 10, top 15 type coach. It's not coaching. Maybe it's because the talent in Georgia has been overrated a little bit, and I think that there's a big push to try to get a fourth state in there. But if you look at you know this map, if you look at how many players from the state of Georgia are signing compared to the big three, I think it, it's kind of ridiculous to look at that. The other thing, and you know, not to dog on Texas, but just because you're putting 25,000, 30,000 people in the stands on a Friday night and you're getting 50,000 people at Jerry's World for the high school t- state championship game still doesn't mean that your top-end talent and your top-to-bottom talent is better than Florida and California. And I think that I, I do respect Texas football. I do think Texas football is good, but I think because they get a lot of fans at their games, that's become the, the fact that Texas football is better than anybody. No, the passion for Texas football is better than any state, but that doesn't mean the talent 
that much better. And you, you got to remember, too, that the state of Texas has so many different schools, not just the University of Texas, not just A&M, but there's 12, 13 schools in the state of Texas that are getting good talent. I remember talking to a, a former Pac-12 assistant coach a couple of years ago who had coached in the state of Texas, and then was in the Pac-12. I asked him, you know, what do you think, you know, when you recruited Texas players, he said, look, I want those Texas players because they're going to be able to help me now because these kids are well-coached, they're polished, and they're well-disciplined, but I also know that they've got a much lower ceiling than any other state of players that I'm recruiting. And I found that to be interesting, that he thought that they were ready to help him right now, but long-term, he wasn't that high on Texas talent because he thinks most of those players, because they've been playing at such a young age, they've they peaked out and they've maxed out, and there wasn't the upside from Texas players. And that's why I think, with the exception of you know some key players in the state of Texas and some key positions, you're not seeing as many players from the state of Texas going to the NFL like you would expect, considering how many players are signing with Division One schools each year. That makes sense. All right. Well, thanks, Brandon, for that. And just so people know, this is on Max Preps. It's actually from two years ago, January 1st, 2013, from NFL.com. Active, uh, as rock, active rosters from January 1st, 2013, where these players come from. So it was 268 active NFL players from California, 235 from Texas, and 222 from Florida. Like I said, Georgia had 113. And the next highest was actually Ohio, like you mentioned, 101 from there. Um, some interesting states, uh, North Dakota doesn't have any, uh, Vermont doesn't have any, Rhode Island doesn't have any NFL guys. Alaska has two, which I like, that's kind of weird to me. I didn't realize that South Dakota has three, North Dakota has none. I don't, I, I don't see what the difference would be. Is it that much warmer, that little South of North Dakota? I don't know what's going on there. New Hampshire and Maine each have one, uh, Washington DC has 10 in the, in the city and Delaware only has three. So, uh, and like, it's funny, Westford, Ohio has 101, Pennsylvania has 68, and West Virginia, which is like up next to both of them, only has three. So it's kind of a weird little tri-state area thing going on there. Yeah, what's funny to me is that as good as North Dakota State has been in the FBA, or FCS playoffs, and they've won four straight state, or, uh, national championships, you would think that they would be producing a lot more NFL talent, but I think a lot of it is you know, guys that they want to go play at, the, at a high level, but they're just not the opportunity to go to the FBS level, so they go to a good FCS school, so it's not like it's a lot of in-state talent, but that, that's kind of a fascinating number that they've been dominant at the FCS level the last four years, but that hasn't necessarily translated into a lot of NFL draft picks. Yeah, very strange. But uh, check it out. You can uh, Google the, the map. It's on Max Preps, the Preps to Pros. Uh, and it was a good question from Matt, so thanks for sending that in. And uh, we'll list, uh, you, know, you can follow uh, Brandon on Twitter, at Brandon Huffman. And I want to just talk about this USC class real, real quickly. We don't want to beat a you know, dead horse because we've talked about it a lot. But um, I didn't think USC would be able to come back and, and get that number one spot with the guys that had left on their, um, you know, left on the board. Steve Sarkeesian for the second year in a row went you know, four for four or five for five or whatever you want to say on signing day. Didn't miss anyone that he was after. And you know, Scout ended up jumping them to the, the number one spot. I don't know if that was surprising to you at all that, that they, they overtook Alabama, who looked like they had an amazing class. It wasn't surprising to me only because about a week before I did a column that the only school that I thought had a chance to catch Alabama was USC. Now, the reason I didn't think that they were going to actually pull it off is because you always expect Alabama to land two or three guys on signing day, a lot of big guys, but they did the majority of their heavy lifting prior to signing day, and I think they only got one signing day commitment. But it was getting Deontay Burnett and Kevin Scott that ultimately ended up pushing 
USC passed Alabama. And so I think it, it was definitely there was only one school that had a chance to do it, and that was USC, and they did it. But it it was an impressive close because I know that when, when Greg Biggins and I put out the Scott 300 tracker and we had predicted uh, John Houston or Sheen Green and Iman Marshall and Porter Gustin and Osa Messina all to USC, there was some other fan bases. You know, One was Arizona State that thought we were crazy. There's no way that they were getting all five, but they did get all five. And honestly, the one that I thought was the longest shot of that five, and I never felt he was that long of a shot, was Porter Gustin, and once they got him, it was kind of like, all right, they've got this thing in very good position to pass Alabama. And then when Alabama only added one, and I think they ended up losing a kid on signing day, that was all the, the momentum USC needed to get that number one class. I think you, know, you look at it from top to bottom, and it just seems like every positional unit, they added at least a dude, you know, a guy that's going to be a potential impact player early and you know, to, to land – probably the best cover corner to come out of the West Coast in, you know, five, ten years uh, to land, you know, the best player to come out of the state of Utah since Hawaii Nada, and probably the best number two player to come out of the state of Utah ever. Um, you, you just look at that class and the efforts that, you know, when Greg and I were trying to determine who was going to be the Pac-12 recruiter of the year, there was about four or five coaches on the USC staff that had a legitimate case to be made to be it. That's how good that class was that you knew it was going to be an SC coach, but it was which one because they all did such a good job of getting key guys. And I think that it was as impressive a close as, as we've seen from a West Coast school in a long time. And, I mean, that's up there with kind of how some of those, like an Ole Miss did two years ago when they closed with Larry Tunzel and Robert Candici and I think Antonio Connor and a couple other key guys. But you don't expect Ole Miss to do it. You expected USC to do it. And that's two years in a row that – Steve Sarkeesian's had about as excellent a final week of recruiting as any coach could have. And, you know, I think it's different if you want to compare what Sarkeesian's doing to the stuff that Pete Carroll used to do. Pete Carroll didn't have to go undefeated on signing day. They didn't have the sanctions to deal with. He had long shots out there, five-star guys they'd bring in on signing day. If they, and if they didn't get them, it was okay. It was kind of they had space. And, but with the sanctions the last two years, Steve Sarkeesian and his staff really had to hit a number right on the nose, like you had to get it exactly. So they had to have this plan in place, and if they didn't get the, the big five guys that you mentioned, they had to have someone else as kind of a backup there. So that, to me, that was the most impressive thing. It, it wasn't just who they closed with, but knowing that you really had to close with, if your plan didn't come through, you're left uh, holding the bag. There's nothing you can do because you needed to fill those spots with, you know, with the sanctions there. You didn't really have much choice. If you want to get those numbers up, you have to fill every single spot. Right, and I think the other thing that you know Pete Carroll had going for him back then is you didn't have other Pac-12 schools that were really recruiting at a high level. You had some magical years by like a Cal when they brought in Deshaun Jackson and the year before they bring in a Marshawn Lynch, but you really didn't have four or five Pac-12 schools finishing in the top 20, top 25 every year, which has been the case in the Pac-12 the last few years. And so there were guys in the, in, back in the day, I mean, Deontay Burnett, was kind of the exception to the rule. That happened a lot with Pete Carroll. Where he could offer a guy like Alfred Rowe the day before signing day or after, offer uh, Trevon Patterson um, you know, the day before signing day or a couple days before signing day and get those guys to flip, and it destroys one team's class because they lose their top player, and he becomes the 24th or 25th player at a C. Like you said, they've got to hit on those guys because now the guys that they may have had a chance to flip in years past – those guys have committed to Oregon. Those guys have committed to Arizona State. Those guys have committed to UCLA. And so Steve Sarkeesian's had to work that much harder 
with recruiting because now the Pac-12 is as competitive as it's ever been, and there's other options that these guys are searching on. So I think when you, you go into the state of Utah, and especially when the University of Utah has had kind of a resurgence of years, and you've got Osa Messina, whose brother plays at Utah, and you're able to pull him out, a Porter Gustin who's got offers from you know east to west, north to south, and you go grab him, and then you continue to lock up the kids in Southern California, but you get outside, you go into Texas, and you get two good running backs from down there. I mean, that's Pete Carroll-type stuff, but you're having a much more difficult time recruiting because the conference is so much better. And I think that's what makes what Sark and his staff have done so impressive. And then on top of that, I think the thing that was the most fascinating, I joked with you and Gerard about, you know, why would a a coach do a junior day four or five days before signing day? Does he, like, really hate the media that much (laughs) that he wants to make us chase him down? But that was what's most impressive. While most schools are trying to lock up their 2015 class five days before junior or before signing day, he's still got four or five key guys on the board, and he's having a junior day five days before <laughs> signing day. I mean, this is a staff that loves to recruit and knows how to recruit, and it's evident already in the 2016 class how many key guys from the Southland have USC high on their list after signing a phenomenal class that may have filled some of the spots that these 2016 recruits are trying to you know fill in a few, in future years. Well, great points there, Brandon. We really appreciate you uh, coming on the Peristyle Podcast. We'll definitely have to have you on again. But thanks for uh, coming on the show. You can follow him at Brandon Huffman on Twitter, and he comes by the Peristyle as well. But thanks again, Brandon. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. All right. Everyone else, hey, thanks to, for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast, a little special edition with Brandon Huffman from Scout.com. We will be back with our regular show on Monday. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.